a near-death experience, the loss of a loved one, travel to a foreign country or culture. These are things that people often give as examples of life-changing experiences because they have a significant impact, or they often have a significant impact on the way people think and act. They might change the way people look at the world. For example, some people, their own close call with death, or perhaps even living through the death of a, of a loved one, what helps them to come to grips with the, the shortness, the brevity of their own life, the preciousness of life. They might say that that experience makes them more grateful for the, the life that they have been given. Those who travel to a, a new place or a new culture will sometimes say that their eyes were open to the lives and experiences of others in a, in a new way. But as significant as some of these experiences can be, if you're a Christian, you know that the most radical, life-transforming experience one can have is to enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. Those other experiences, any other experience that we could have on earth, pales in comparison to the experience of being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. All these other experiences fall short of the life-changing nature of being united to Jesus Christ and adopted into the family of God. Well, we're going to be in the second half of Colossians chapter 3 this morning. You can go ahead and turn with me there in your Bibles there or find the text in your bulletin. We're going to be starting in Colossians 3.12. And as we saw last week and we'll continue to see this week, your relationship to God, your relationship with God is to transform your entire life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians have died to their old way of life and been, have been given new life in Jesus Christ. And so last week, the kind of the, the first part of this two-part sermon, that meant that we should put off our, our sinful ways of our former life. Christians are to put off their old life. And as we'll see this week, it also means that Christians are to put on new thoughts and new attitudes and new actions. We're to put off the old and put on the new. We're to think and act in a way that is pleasing to God. Well, if we're Christians, our life is to be transformed. In some ways, that really is what it means to be a Christian, that your life has been transformed. It's a life-changing experience like no others. Now, Christians are not perfect. Christians will never be perfect in this life, but the longer that they have been united to Christ, the more and more their life ought to look like Christ. Friends, that's what the Bible calls the, the process of sanctification. It's this process of putting off our sins and putting on righteousness. So with that, please look with me, starting in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Do not work only while being watched as people-pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Well, in these verses, we see that faith in Jesus Christ is to transform your entire existence. As Paul writes twice in both verse 17 and verse 23 of chapter 3, whatever you do, do it in the name or for the glory of God. In these verses, Paul teaches that your relationship with Jesus is to transform your relationship first with your fellow Christians, is to transform your relationship with your new brothers and sisters in Christ, the people you have been united to. But it's also to to transform your relationships in society. These two ideas will really serve as the outline of the sermon, the two points of the sermon. So the first point is a gospel-shaped life in the church. That's verses 12 through 17 of our text. And then the second is a gospel-shaped life in society. That's chapter 318 through chapter 4, verse 1. So first, a a gospel-shaped life in the church. Verse 12 begins by reminding the Colossians and by reminding you, Christian, of who you are in Christ. That's how Paul opens. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Friends, Christians are those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Salvation is a divine and sovereign work of God. It comes at his initiation and his intervention into sinners' hearts. It does not come through through your own efforts. Christians are those who have been chosen by God, and as those who have been chosen by God, Christians are dearly loved by God. In some sense, this is what it means to be chosen by God. It means that he has set his saving and redeeming love on you. In fact, if you're a Christian, the, the most important thing about you is that you are loved by God. Like a a child feels safe and secure when they know that they are loved by their parents. A child feels safe and secure in a a loving family. Well, for you, Christian, it's the knowledge and awareness and experience of God's love that should be your security and, and your comfort. It is what can help you persevere in trials and even endure the, the mistreatment of others. At the end of the day, no matter what happens in your life, you can rejoice because you are loved by God. And Christian, when, when God chose you and he set his love on you, he also set you apart as holy. In fact, to, to be holy means to be set apart. Christians have been uniquely set apart to God. Those who have been set apart by God and for God are therefore to, to live differently. The Christians have been made holy, they have been set apart, that they may live lives of holiness or moral purity to bring glory to God. 
Well, they, they do this to show that they have, in fact, been loved by God, that they have been chosen by God, that they have been set aside by God. They are to reflect something of God's own holiness in their relationships with one another and in the lives that they live. Their lives are to be lived, therefore, for the glory of God. Well, notice that Paul begins verse 12 with the word, therefore. Well, that word, therefore, is pointing us back to what we studied last week, the the truths that we studied last week. Specifically, what we saw in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that Christians have been united to Christ, and their life is now hidden with Christ in God. But also, what we saw in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, That Christians have not just been united to God, they've not just been united to Christ, but they've also been united to one another. They are now brothers and sisters in Christ. There is now neither Greek or or Jew, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, therefore, what does unity with Christ and with one another look like for our relationships in the church? Uh, Our relationships in, in society, our family relationships? What does it look like to be set apart to God? Well, these are the questions that that Paul is, in some sense, answering in our verses today. And so in these opening verses, verses 12 through 17, Paul particularly places his focus on the church. This is evident by his reference to one body in verse 15. That reference to one body is the body of Christ, the, the church as well as the many one-another commands that he gives. Those one-another commands have their primary reference to the church, how we're to live as the church of Jesus Christ with one another. So members of Emmanuel, Paul is describing here as how we are to live together as the church. This is what we commit to do, what we covenant together to do when we join the church. So Paul writes that in in light of your union with Jesus and with one another, you are to to put on, or you're to to clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If you remember back to, to last week, these virtues are basically the opposite of what Paul called believers to put off earlier in chapter 3. This is the process of sanctification. We don't just put off, we have to put something else on. So he called us to put off things like lust, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, and slander, all of which are self-centered vices. They're self-centered sins and interested in only gratifying our, our own desires. But the virtues Paul lists in verse 12 speak about how we are to consider the interest of others above our own. And really, that's the definition of humility. Compassion and kindness are expressions of heartfelt care for others. They can only be lived out in relationship to others. One pastor defined gentleness as the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. Patience is a selfless response that is opposed to anger. Well, verse 13 explains what it looks like to put on these virtues in practice. There's more that could be said about how we're to put on these virtues, but verse 13 explains what it looks like in practice. It means that you are willing to bear with one another or be patient with the the sins and the the mistakes and the differences of one another. And more than that, when someone sins against you, 
even if they sin intentionally against you. It means you're willing to forgive as opposed to harboring bitterness or anger or malice in your heart. So back in in the opening verses of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, those verses that we studied last week, Paul commanded us to seek the things that are above in order to to put off the deeds of the flesh, to to rid ourselves of our our sins, we needed to set our mind on heavenly truths. Well, friends, the, the same thing is true for putting on our new life in Christ. You must set your mind on things above. Notice the heavenly truth that Paul calls you to remember in order to bear with one another and forgive one another. He states it. It is the fact that God has forgiven you. Just as God has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive one another. And I want you to notice as we we go through these verses this morning, that throughout our passage, the way that we are called to treat one another as Christians has nothing to do with with what other people are like or how they treat you. Paul makes no reference to how others treat you as to how you are to treat others. No, no, he always points us to heavenly truths, things that are yours in Christ Jesus. That is what is to guide your your actions towards others. So as a Christian, when you are tempted to become bitter or angry, to think on or, or dwell on the wrongs that others have done to you, Remember God's patience towards you. Remember his forgiveness of you. Friend, the the truth is that you have sinned far more against God than any person will ever sin against you. You have sinned far more against God than any person will ever sin against you. It's not even close. Yet, Yet God has forgiven you. He continues to be patient with you when you sin. So brothers and sisters, as I said last week, there are many differences between us in this church. That's true of every church. Perhaps some of the differences are more visible in this church, where we come from from many different nations and cultures. We look differently. We think differently. We act differently. That means it is very easy for us to misunderstand one another and even to unintentionally offend one another. I remember when I was first getting to know Pastor Ben, when I would ask him his opinion on something. Like, was, was that a good choice I made? Do you think I, I did the right thing? Or what did you think of my sermon? He would say, it was okay. Now, in the United States, to say something like that is okay is a way to say uh, it's mediocre, uh, not very good, needs improvement. But that's not what Ben meant, as I, as I quickly figured out. Thankfully, Ben has such a joyful disposition, it was pretty easy to figure out that was not what he meant. But the point is, it is easy for us to unintentionally offend one another. I'm sure I've unintentionally offended many of you. Our differences make that easy to happen. But friends, when that happens, what should your response be? It's to bear with others, to assume the best about others to be understanding with others, and to forgive. But friends, we're not just going to unintentionally offend one another. We are sinners. We will not just offend one another unintentionally. We will also sin intentionally against one another. But what should your response be when someone sins against you? 
It's to bear with them, to be patient with them, and to forgive them. And why? Brothers and sisters, it's because God has forgiven you. He has borne with you. He has been patient with you. When you are struggling to forgive, you must remind yourselves of the glorious truths of the gospel. In verse 14, Paul calls you to put on love. He calls us to put on love, which binds us together as members of this local church. It is love that holds the unity of the church together. As one pastor put it, love is being pictured as a garment that is to be put on top of these other virtues. Love is not just another virtue to be added, but the the supreme virtue. It is to, to go over all, to cover all. Friends, it does not please the Lord if you are patient and kind with others only to get something from them in return. No, you are to, to act out of, of love. It's to be the, the motivating factor of your behavior towards one another. And friends, the truth is that you will not be able to persist in bearing with one another and forgiving one another unless you truly love one another. It may, it may last for a time, but you will not be able to persist. But friends, love is the, the glue that holds the church together. And it is love, it is our love for one another that displays the glory of God. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Brothers and sisters, what, what heavenly truth are, are you to, to remember to help you to love one another? Uh, there are, are many But just look back at verse 12. The fact that God has loved you. Not because there was anything lovely about you. Not because that there was anything that you could give God in return. It's not because God needed anything from you. But because he chose to. Friends, therefore you can choose to, to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You can choose to love others. Friends, if love is the glue that holds the church's unity together, it is peace with one another that is to be our ultimate objective. That's what we see in verse 15. And what is that heavenly truth that you're to set your minds on to pursue this this peace? Again, it is the, the peace that Jesus made between you and God through his sacrifice on the cross. Remember back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Once you, Christian, were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. In other words, you were once enemies of God. You were not at peace with God. But now, he, Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Friends, the the peace that Jesus brings is is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's a blood-bought reality. Jesus purchased it by his death, by his spilled blood on the cross. He made peace between you and God. And friends, there is no greater need than anyone has than to be at peace with God. Because of the sins of our first parents, Adam and Eve, None of us are born at peace with God. We are sinners and and enemies of God. We are not born mainly good. We are born at at war, in opposition, hostile to God. We are sinners by nature. 
And therefore we are under God's just wrath and we need peace. But but peace is not something that can come through your own efforts. It does not come through your good works. You cannot earn peace with God. Friends, it can only come through repenting or turning away from your sin by confessing your sin and by placing your faith in, in Jesus Christ and submitting to him as Lord. Friends, peace only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, if if you've never done that, if you've never repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe if you're just not sure, let me urge you to to turn to God in repentance and faith today. If you have questions about what that looks like, I'd be thrilled to talk to you more about that after the service, as I'm sure any member of this church would be as well. Well, for those of you who are Christians, this peace that Jesus has purchased for us is to be lived out in our relationships with one another. So as we saw in Colossians 3.11, Jesus did not just make peace between us and God, but between all who have been united to him. At first, Jesus makes peace between us and God, but that peace is also made between fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So in the church, there is to be peace between Greek and Jew between Indian and Pakistani, between Russian and Ukrainian, between any Christians of various tribes from the countries in which you come from. Friends, our heavenly identity trumps our earthly identity. And therefore, peace and love and unity are are to mark the church. And so, brothers and sisters, if the peace and unity that Paul advocates for here is not part of your life, If this does not characterize your relationships, this is not how you think about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that that come from maybe a tribe different than your own or a country different from your own. Well, then you should ask what it is that is ruling your heart. Notice that Paul writes, it is the peace that Christ has purchased for you that is to rule your hearts. And therefore, it is to, to govern your relationships. So if peace does not define your relationships with one another, if peace does not define your your attitude towards one another, what is ruling your heart? What other than the, the, the peace that Christ has purchased for you is governing your heart? What is motivating your actions? Is it your own pride that that cannot forgive others? Is it a desire for control? Is it your own selfishness? Friends, if your relationships are not marked by peace, you need to ask what it is that is ruling your heart. Well, how are we to pursue all of this? We're commanded to to be at peace with one another. We're commanded to to love one another. Well, how are we to build this this love and this peace and this unity? Look at verse 16. As a church, we are to let the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Friends, it is God's word that is to rule our heart. The the peace that we find through God's word. The word of God is to be at home in the life of the Christian and at the center of the life of the church. Now, this certainly happens as we preach and teach and and pray the word each week. What I want you to, to see is that Paul envisions the whole church building one another up through the word. All members of the church have a, have a role to play if the word of Christ is to dwell richly among us. 
We're all to, in some sense, teach and, and build one another up in the word. This doesn't just happen as I or another pastor stand up here and preach to you each week. Friends, it happens in the conversations that you have after church. Have conversations centered around the word of God. It happens when you meet one-on-one with another member of the church regularly to to study God's word together, to to pray, to encourage one another with the word. It happens, Lord willing, in our men and women's DCs as we sharpen one another, as we discuss God's word. And friends, it, it happens in so many other places. We're all to admonish one another. We all have a responsibility as members of the church to lovingly correct those who are not living according to the word of God. And friends, do you notice what, what Paul says? He points to our singing together. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you're singing, when you come to church, what we just did when we sang, well, you're not just singing to God. You're not just singing for yourself. You're also singing to build up and encourage and instruct your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not just singing to God. We're singing to, to one another. Church, your, your singing matters. It's one of the ways that the word of Christ was richly among us. But the point is that the word is not to dwell among us just in a superficial way, but richly. It's to to rule our, our hearts. The word is to infiltrate every aspect of our lives together, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And for this to happen, the, the whole church, not just pastors, not just those leading the music, Well, the whole church must be engaged. So brothers and sisters, first ask yourself, does God's word rule your heart? But second, ask yourself, how can you contribute to seeing the word of God dwell richly among us here at Emmanuel? How can you help it dwell among your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How can you encourage one another in the word? We find the bottom line principle of these opening verses in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Before you act, before you speak, ask, does this bring glory to God? Your motivation for doing everything to the glory of God is your your thankfulness to him for what he has done. This is what you're to set your mind on. Notice that part of doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus includes giving heartfelt thanks to God. That's part of what it means to do everything for the glory of God. Look back at the end of verse 15. Just after Paul exhorted you to let the peace of God, our peace of God rule in your hearts, what does he command you? He commands you to be thankful. What will help you live at peace with others? Well, thankfulness for the peace that Christ has purchased for you. Notice in verse 16 how you are to sing. You're to sing with thankfulness in your hearts for what God has done. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that your holiness is directly related to your gratitude toward God. Your holiness is directly related to your gratitude toward God. Are you grateful? Are you thankful for his forgiveness, his love, his peace, his word? Well, if so, the evidence of that will be that you live out these truths and these realities in your own life and in relationship with one another. Friends, if you are not grateful for God's forgiveness and love and peace, perhaps you should ask if you truly know God. 
Because Christians are those who are grateful for God's work in their lives. And they, they live out that gratitude. They live out the realities of what Jesus has done for them in their relationships with their fellow Christians. And also, as we are about to see, within their, their relationships in society. And that's what we're going to turn our attention next, a gospel-shaped life in society. So look again with me, starting at verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Do not work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Well, the the main idea of these verses is that the gospel shapes both how we respond to the authority in our lives and how we exercise the authority that we have been given. So though Christians have all been united to Christ, God does not place them all in the same roles or give them all the the same responsibilities. God-ordained differences and distinctions remain between men and women, husbands and wives, children and parents. God does not place us all in the same places in society. Therefore, in this life, you may find yourself being under someone else's authority, or you may find yourself being in a, in a position of authority. For, for many of us, we find ourselves in both positions at the same time. We may be both a, a parent with authority and an employee under authority. We have both of those relationships simultaneously in very, various aspects of our life. But what is most important is not the position which God has providentially placed you, but how you respond in the situation in which he has placed you. What is most important is not the position in which God has providentially placed you, but how you respond to the situation in which he has placed you. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul wrote, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. And so in our, in our earthly relationships, in our family relationships, in our societal relationships, the heavenly truth that you were to set your mind on is that Jesus is Lord. He is your king. As Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, that, that last verse in our text, you have a master in heaven, and you are to live under his lordship, in, a, in obedience to him, under his direction, submitting to him and, and following him. Well, therefore, because of that, you can humbly submit to authority, knowing that by doing so, you're ultimately serving Jesus. Jesus is over all earthly authority. It falls underneath his umbrella, like everyone in an organization falls underneath the CEO. Therefore, as you submit to any earthly authority that you have, you're ultimately submitting to Jesus Christ. If you have authority... You are to remember that you too have a master in heaven who has treated you with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And therefore, you are to act likewise. 
So, so Paul's focus in these verses is on how you are to live under the lordship of Jesus in your social relationships. Marriage, family, employment. We'll just take them one at a time. So first, marriage, husbands and wives. Well, in his book, Men and Women in the Church, Kevin DeYoung writes this. Men and women are not interchangeable. The man and the woman, in marriage especially, but in the rest of life as well, complement each other, meaning they are supposed to function according to a divine fittedness, a divine fitting together. This is in keeping with the ordering of the entire universe. Think about the complementary nature of creation itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And that is not the only pairing in creation. We find other sorts of couples, like the sun and the moon, morning and evening, day and night, the sea and the dry land, and plants and animals, before reaching the climatic couple, a man and a woman. In every pairing, each part belongs with the other, but neither is interchangeable. My friends, God created men and women equally in his image. He created them with complete equality in their value and in their work before him. Yet God also created men and women to fill different roles that complement each other. Eve was created to be a helper to Adam. They were to complement each other in fulfilling God's mission. They needed each other. Adam needed Eve. Eve needed Adam. We need others. These distinctions and different roles are not the result of sin, but part of God's good creation. They were there before the fall. Therefore, they're to be lived out today in both the church, men are to serve as elders, and in the home. And see Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 11. And so when it comes to marriage, husbands have been given by God the role of loving and, and sacrificial leadership, a position of, of authority. And wives have been given the role of humbly following the leadership of her, her husband as they seek to, to jointly glorify the Lord, as they seek to live out the, the mission that God has given them. Friends, I, I know that that, that statement or, or, or what I just said is, is not a popular statement to say. There's not universal agreement in it in society, and there's not universal agreement on it even in the church. Friends, this issue is not one of, of first importance. If Christians disagree on this issue, this does not put them outside of the faith. But that does not make it an unimportant issue. And that is because marriage is intended to be a beautiful picture of God's redemption. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, the husband's sacrificial leadership in the home is to be a picture of Jesus' leadership of the church. And the wife's humble submission is to be a picture of the way that the church, God's people, are to submit to Christ. Marriage is, is intended and was intended from the beginning to be a living picture of the gospel. So, friends, what might this look like in practice? Well, well, from culture to culture, it's going to look quite a bit different. But I think there's at least some, some general principles that can be offered. The first is that the submission of a wife to her husband is a willing and it's a voluntary submission. Wives are not given the, the same command as, as children in this passage to obey. Well, husbands, that, that means you are not in any way to demand or coerce the submission of your wife. Look at verse 19. You are not to be bitter towards them. 
or as other translations put it, harsh. Instead, you are intended to to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Uh, Friends, how did did Christ love the church? He gave his very life for it. How does Christ love the church now, even when we sin? It's with a kind and a compassionate and a patient love. Therefore, your leading of your wife is to be loving. Your your sacrificial leadership is to to seek the, the good of your wife. You are to put her interests and her desires above your own. Your goal should be making, submitting to your loving leadership in the home a delight and a joy for your wife. That's something that she really doesn't even notice. You're, you're to exercise your leadership for the good of your wife and not for your own good. And so husbands, if you come home from work and expect your wife to meet your every need, to cook and clean up, to care exclusively for the kids while you go and relax or, or with you go out with friends, I don't believe that's a picture of the sacrificial love of Jesus. If you never consult your wife before making a life-altering decision, if you don't value her input and, and just do what you want, that is, is not putting her needs above your own. No, you're, you're to value her as your equal. Seek to, to cherish her and love her. And you are to, to show and express that love to her. Friends, it also means you're to seek to to lead her spiritually, to pray with her, to read the Bible together. So if your leadership in the home is confined to just the practical matters of life, well, you have your priorities wrong and you've misunderstood or ignored the role to which God has called you. And wives, you're called to submit to your husbands, not because they are perfect, but because it is fitting in the Lord. Your willing submission to your husband is an act of faith and trust in the Lord. It is to him to whom you are ultimately submitting. That means you owe Jesus your ultimate allegiance. It would be wrong of you to follow your husband into sin. There are limits. However, though your husband is not perfect and will never be, you're called to give him your respect and your support. To seek to encourage his leadership instead of fighting against it. To build up your husband with your words. To to talk well of him with others. And ladies, you can do this even when your husband disappoints. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. We're all to patiently bear with one another. Friends, how much more so in our marriages? Well, next, Paul turns his attention to children and parents. And so children, youth, I want to talk to you for a minute. First, let me say that I'm so glad that you are part of this church. And I want you to know that that God's word is just as much for you as anyone else here. And not just some parts of God's word, but, but all of it. But through the Apostle Paul, God speaks to you directly in verse 20. And this is what he said. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, youth, if you've ever wondered what God wants from you, or how you are to to live in a way that is pleasing to God, well, God tells you exactly what he expects from you. It's not the only thing that he expects from you, but he tells you exactly what he expects from you. In his great kindness, he makes it very easy for you to understand. He says, obey your parents in everything. Now, kids, obeying your parents will not save you. 
The most important thing you can ever do is to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, is the only way of salvation. But to repent and to place your faith in Jesus is to say that you want to follow Jesus. And kids, youth, following Jesus means obeying Jesus. And so how do you obey him? It's by obeying your parents in everything. Listen to them when they talk to you. Do what they ask happily and, and without complaining. Kids, you may not always understand your parents' rules, and your parents are not perfect, so their rules will not always be perfect. But do you know what? It pleases the Lord when you obey anyway. But parents, Paul has a word for you too. Paul specifically addresses fathers because God has given them the leadership role in the family. But I believe his words could rightly be understood as speaking to both parents, though it is the father who bears greater responsibility to see these things lived out in the home. Fathers, you bear greater responsibility. Well, parents, God's command to you is not to exasperate, or as other translations put it, provoke your children so they will not grow discouraged. If you misuse the authority that God has given you over your children, you can easily discourage your children away from obedience and away from the Lord. Your children are called to obey. It is right to teach them to obey, to discipline them when they disobey. But parents, do not provoke and discourage your children by being harsh with them or or growing angry with them. You are to to discipline and correct lovingly and, and gently. But it's not just through harsh discipline that that you can discourage your children. There are other ways that you can provoke and discourage your children as well. One way is simply failing to listen to them. If you have kids, you know they will act out to get your attention. They will act out to get others' attention. So parents, put down your phone and pause to hear about their day. Listen to them tell you about what they are excited about. Take time to enter into their joys and sorrows. Friends, take time to to get to know your children. Don't provoke them to act out in order to get your attention. Don't provoke them to act out in order for you to to show them love and attention. Parents, you can also discourage your children by setting standards so high that your children can never achieve them. If your children feel like they can never live up to your standards— and you're constantly criticizing them, you run the risk of provoking and discouraging your children by communicating that they are unable to please you. Friends, that's going to discourage your your children from even trying to please you. And parents, you can also discourage your children by being a hypocrite. When you ignore and justify your own sin, but punish the sins of your children. Parents, newsflash, you are sinners. I'm a parent. I am a sinner. And so when you sin against your children, apologize and ask for their forgiveness. Own your sin. Don't justify it by blaming it on your children. Parents, that is not a diminishing of your authority in the home. It's a way to build a a loving and respectful authority in the home. It's a way to show love to your children. Children and parents, God has given you different roles and responsibilities but you can each live them out for the glory of God. And so the the final relationship that Paul turns his attention to is slaves and masters. 
So first, I want to say a couple of words about slavery first. Lord willing, I'll be preaching through the book of Philemon in two weeks, and I'll say more about it then. But first, I want to be honest and say that the, the Bible never condemns slavery outright. Now, there are reasons for that. The goal of Jesus and his disciples was not political revolution. It was spiritual change, as we have seen in the the last couple of weeks, last week and and this week, and as we really just see throughout the Bible and the Gospels. Also, as, as one author puts it, slavery in the ancient world was not always undesirable, considering the alternatives. Not necessarily good alternatives. Some persons sold themselves into slavery to escape grinding poverty. Others entered into slavery with hopes of paying off debts or coming out on the other side as Roman citizens. Slavery did not have to be a permanent condition. It was often temporary. It could be a process toward a better lot in life. This is why the word for slave in the Bible is is sometimes translated bondservant. It was a a temporary uh, temporary nature to it often. The slavery in the ancient world was not the the race-based slavery that we so often think of now, that that scourge on society. And yet, at the same time, slavery in the ancient world was often brutal and unbearable. People were often physically abused and, and sexually abused. So while it's true that the Bible never issues an outright condemnation of slavery, it also never condones it. I believe that the Bible actually lays the groundwork for it to be abolished. As people are changed by the good news of the gospel, we see that the groundwork for the abolition of slavery being laid out. Slavery was not part of God's good creation before the fall, as was marriage and family. But slavery did exist throughout the Roman Empire, including in the city of Colossae. And it it seems as if both slaves and masters were members of the church in Colossae. They were equal in Christ. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. Nevertheless, they had different positions in society. Some of them, I'm sure, served masters who were not part of the church. Some of the masters probably had slaves who were not part of the church. They had different positions in society, and so Paul instructs them in how they were to each honor the Lord. Friends, there is not an exact correspondence between our our own situations and the slave-master relationship of the ancient world. There are in some parts of the world, but probably not for us. And nevertheless, there are definite parallels. Even in this country, there are those who serve as house help who are mistreated and abused. Some, both those who who serve as house help and who work other jobs, have passports taken. They find themselves trapped here. Others come and are, are not paid what they are promised and do not have the financial resources to return home. Friends, even those of you who have a more typical job and do not face some of those pressures, you still have bosses who have authority over you. You still may be treated unjustly, be forced to work long hours or otherwise mistreated. You might be fired without cause, not paid what you were promised. What does God say to those of you who may be in those situations? Look at verses 22 and 23. God calls you to to faithfully serve and obey. Not just when your your bosses might be paying attention. Not just when you you might win their favor. But ultimately because you are serving the Lord. Their authority falls under his authority. 
Now, friends, this does not mean it is wrong to try to get out from a bad situation or that it is wrong to try to find a new job. It does not mean it is wrong to turn to the police or courts if you are being treated in an illegal manner. And I want to say clearly that if you are being physically abused, you should look for a way to escape that situation. And if that is your situation, please come talk to me or or Pastor Ben after the service. But, for the most part, in most situations, God calls you to faithfully submit and serve your earthly bosses even when they may be treating you harshly or unjustly or unfairly. And he gives you two reasons why. One, the the one we've thought so much about already, that you're ultimately working for the Lord. And it's the Lord who will reward your faithful obedience. The, The fullness of that reward will not be enjoyed until heaven. But Christian, it is yours. Like people receive gratuity when they leave their jobs here in the UAE, there is an eternal gratuity laid up for Christians in heaven, far greater than any earthly treasure that you can imagine. Friends, it is an eternity spent in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the second reason, look at verse 25. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. In other words, just because you are a Christian, you are not free to do wrong with no penalty, to ignore your earthly responsibilities. But I believe that warning in verse 25 points both ways. Points back to those who are serving as as slaves or under authority, but also to those in authority, those that Paul refers to as masters. Look at at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul also addresses masters and bosses. So Paul says in verse 25, there is no favoritism. And so brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in a position of authority at work, Friends, maybe if you have house help at home, or you'll one day have house help at home, well, you're commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to treat those you have authority over justly and fairly. Pay a fair wage. Give adequate time off. Keep your word. Be gentle and kind. Treat those under your authority well. Friends, you're to remember that you have a master in heaven, Jesus himself. And how has that master treated you? Friends, the truth is he has treated you far better than you deserve. So go and do likewise. And again, we find the bottom line principle in verse 23. Whatever you do, whether as a husband or wife, child or parent, boss or employee, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Friends, it is that truth that is to order the way you live your life as a Christian, both in the church and in society. As Christians, you have been transferred from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the the kingdom of light. You have a new master, and so you're to put off your, your old ways of living, your old life, and put on new ways of thinking and acting, new attitudes. Friends, union with Jesus Christ is a life changing experience. And that life-changing experience should be evident in the words and deeds and relationships of each and every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are all to live for the glory of God. Let's pray.